On Criminal, we tell true stories about people who've done wrong, been wronged, or gotten caught somewhere in the middle. I never did anything wrong. I never had a speeding ticket. So I think I just saved all my stuff up for just one thing. From lotto scams to black market whiskey to the accidental death of a rare and beautiful fish, we bring you stories about the most curious crimes around. Listen to Criminal every week, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You are listening to Season 2 of Someone Knows Something from CBC Radio. On December 31, 1997, at a New Year's Eve party, Cheryl Shepard was proposed to on live TV. Two days later, she disappeared. Documentarian David Ridgen joins Cheryl's mother, Odette, on her search for answers. This is Episode 1, The Trailer Park. driving on a road here through some grassy fields. It's very green and coming up. It's been raining. Nice sunny late June afternoon. On the way to begin season two of SKS. My first interview with a family member. But these nice rolling hills are not the location where the case happened. Another case, another disarming Ontario country scene. I pass a film company shooting a popular period TV series in a field. It's magic hour for them, lone elm trees on a horizon with perfect characters, quaintly composed as if on one of A.J. Casson's oil canvases. But to me, today, it feels like murders hidden beneath all the brush strokes. Meanwhile, police in Hamilton Wentworth need your assistance in locating a missing person. East End Station detectives are asking for any information pertaining to the whereabouts of 29-year-old Cheryl Shepherd Sweeney from Queenston Road in Hamilton. She was last spoken to on New Year's Day and was reported missing by her mother yesterday. Cheryl Shepherd Sweeney is described as 5 feet 4 inches tall, 105 pounds, blue eyes and blonde wavy shoulder length hair. Anyone with information... should be coming up any minute here. Here we are. It's a trailer park out here. Nice location. Oh, look out, kitty. <laughs> At the end of the road in this trailer park, a woman named Odette is waiting to tell me about the disappearance of her daughter, Cheryl Shepard from Hamilton, Ontario, in early January of 1998. She was 29. One of the stickiest, impossible-to-put-down, tragic, compelling cases that I've ever heard about. It's got a red truck. That's what she said. Look for the red truck. Hello. You had no trouble? No, no, no trouble at all. Hello. What's your name? Hello, Muffy. 
<laughs> Usually little dogs bark. No. no. Quiet. He's quiet? Quiet. Oh, yeah. Don't bark at nothing. Hi, I'm David. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for meeting me today. Hi. Hi, what's your name? Ron. Hey, Ron. Nice huh. to meet you. You too. Would you like a, a coffee? I could make a coffee? Put a coffee? Sure, yeah. I'll, okay. I'll, yeah, I'll come and record you making me coffee. You want to come in? Yeah. Odette Fisher and Ron, a retired trucker and her partner of three years, live in a narrow white aluminum trailer with a little pressure-treated porch nailed to the side. They, along with Muffy, have been waiting for my arrival under an old sun umbrella. This is a nice little place. It's nice, because I used to live in Hamilton, eh? And Odette's now almost 70, was born into a large French-speaking Acadian family in New Brunswick, but has lived and worked here in Ontario for much of her life. Did you used to live on King Street in Hamilton? Yes, I did. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, by Kennewood. Yes. Yes. I think yes. I found your address there. From there I moved here. Oh, okay. Odette moves around her tiny kitchen with motherly attention and the worn, steady pace of one who has labored for decades straight with few breaks. I sit down at a petite square kitchen table as she prepares the coffee maker. Beside me in the adjoining family room, the stuffed heads of a once regal caribou and white-tailed deer are mounted to opposite walls what Ron, who's a pretty quiet guy, would call trophies from one of his yearly hunting trips. And next to the unfortunate deer with the plastic staring eyes just above the TV, a huge framed photo. It's a picture of Cheryl, Odette's youngest daughter, Cheryl Shepard. Blonde, big hair, blue-eyed, smiling, confident looking. She's about 28 in the picture. And then Odette notices where my eyes have been drawn. It's almost 19 years, right? She didn't deserve this. Like, she's on my mind all the time, all the time. I got her picture there, you know, and if I said this, I, you know, I looked at her, you know, and I just think, you know, like, why? Why did this have to happen to her? I'll never forget it, you know, and... Odette slides an organized, well-thumbed stack of albums from a low shelf near her souvenir spoon collection and places them on the table in front of me. Inside, dozens of photos, notes, documents, and news articles about Cheryl's case. Many of the articles feature Odette herself. Slain girl's mom copes with pain, a mother's anguish. Mom hasn't given up hope. A mother cries for help. She's done this before. The Hamilton mother pleads for the return of her missing daughter. I'm Odette Fisher. I'm Cheryl Shepard's mother. If anybody could knows where she is, could phone the police as soon as possible, please. I thank you. <laughs> 29-year-old Cheryl Shepard went missing on January 2nd, just two days after her boyfriend... But despite Odette's public pleas and appearances in the media over the 18 years since her daughter's disappearance, Cheryl's never been found, and no arrests have been made. You know, I got pictures of uh, Sheila and Cheryl. I put them in brownies, girl guys. We had mother and daughter banquet. Uh, Cheryl's been in the parade. I'll show you some pictures. She's been in the Santa Claus parade because she was good with the baton, eh? 
we did a lot, a lot of stuff together, and I took them all over the place, you know, like a, for a day trip, you know, here and there. It's hard to raise them as a single mother. But I manage. Mm. I never complain, you mm. know. Yeah. I have trouble talking because I got my teeth pulled out. <laughs> I gotta go see the dentist. There's a piece of bone sticking out, and they have to cut it. I'll have it one stitch, as she said, but. She was pretty. People would turn their head and look at her, you know. And um, this one guy that worked with the police, he wanted Cheryl to go for modeling. And I thought, no, I don't want that because I just want her to have a normal life, you know, like be a, a wife, you know, be at close by, you know. I knew she couldn't have kids. She'd love kids. It hurt her. I know she would have been a fantastic mother. I know that. Cheryl had cysts that prevented her from having children. Odette shows me one photo of Cheryl posing with a newborn daughter in a hospital bed, but the baby is not hers. Cheryl had kicked the actual mother, one of her relatives, out of the bed and taken her place, holding the baby she could never have while beaming at the camera. In another photo, she's dressed as a unicorn, one of her favorite creatures, at a Halloween party. Another scene shows Cheryl posing in a leopard skin print dress by a giant drawing of the planet Saturn. Written and signed in her own hand on the back, a message to Odette. To mom, well, here I am looking as sweet as ever. Love always, your daughter Cheryl. XOXOXO. She was 102 pound, 5'4, blonde hair. Sometimes she wears in the ponytail, you know, I mean, for work, because they had to wear a net. She used to go to horseback riding. She did paintball, but because she was so tiny, she was padded good because, you know, it stings, eh? I got pictures of her rope jumping. She was not afraid of stuff like that, you know? She likes sports, you know? Odette is not only Cheryl's mother, but also an important witness to events that happened before and after she discovered Cheryl missing. She settles grimly beside me with a box of tissues, and I press forward into the case. So, so Odette, tell me the, about the day that she disappeared. Tell me about everything you can remember about the day and what happened that day to your rec- recollection. Okay, she phoned me New Year's Day in New Brunswick. She spoke to me. She said, Mom, you know, what time are you arriving tomorrow? I told her. She said, I'll be there to pick you up. She spoke to my mother and to my sister. And then she came back. She said, Mom, you know, you enjoy yourself, you know. She said, I'll see you when you get home. Eh? So this is New Year's Day in 1998? Yes, okay. yeah. Okay. So January 1st, 1998, she calls you in New Brunswick and says, yes. what time are you coming to Toronto? I'll pick you up. And then what? When I got to Toronto, I got home Sunday. It was during the fort because I had to be back to work Monday. So I left Saturday and arrived Sunday because I took the train home. At the time, Odette was a driver for DARTS, an organization that transports the elderly and handicapped around the area of Greater Hamilton near Toronto. Odette had to get up at 4.30 each day to get ready for work. She arranges for Cheryl to pick her up at Union Station in Toronto on Sunday afternoon, January 4th, 1998. 
and where the where the luggage comes in, there's a little cafe there. And I went and I had a coffee, and then because she wasn't there yet, so I thought where I'm, where I'm sitting, I could see where she comes for you know where the luggage is, I would see her. So you know, I drank my coffee. I took my time, and I looked at the time, and I thought, no, she should have been here by now. So I phoned the house, and the machine took the call, and. Um, I thought, okay, maybe she had trouble coming, you know, when driving, you know, the could have had a flat tire or have problems. I'm going to wait a little bit longer. I said, if you pick up the phone, I said, and if I, if you're not there, I said, then I have to find a way home. So I waited another hour and I thought, no, I got to get home because I felt tired. Because, you know, you're on a train for 24 hours, eh? And I had to be up early in the morning for work. and. Turned around, I uh, got home, and Cheryl was not there. Nobody was there, and I thought, that's weird, you know? And, um, so at this time, Cheryl lived with you? Yes. Okay. Well, we lived together, yeah, on Queensland Road. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so just, I want to back up a bit. So New Year's Day, she called you and said, when are you coming? And then you came in on the 4th of January? Yes. Okay. So yes. She, she was expecting you on the 4th. Y- yes, okay. yes. And when you called your answering machine or when you called your home yes. and the answering machine picked up, Yes. sometimes, can you tell if there had been other calls? Were there other yeah, messages? Th- yeah, yeah, there was other messages. Yeah. There had been other messages there. And yes. when you got home and didn't see Cheryl there, did you push play on the messages? Uh, no, I did not have the code number. She did. Okay, because she was home at 3.30 from work. So if there was any message for me, she would write on a piece of paper and leave it there by the phone. I never asked for the, the code number. You weren't able to get the messages off your own phone? No, I couldn't do that. Here I make a note to follow up on these phone messages with Hamilton Police. My first interview with them is booked for a week from now. Anyway, when I got home that night from down east, um, Mike came in. Odette's talking about Michael Lavoie, or Michael Lavoie, as he is sometimes called. He was Cheryl's boyfriend, who had been living with Cheryl and Odette on and off in their seventh-floor apartment at 851 Queenston Road in Stony Creek, now part of Hamilton. He put Cheryl's key, car key there, and house key, like he had. I said, where's Cheryl? I thought Cheryl was just playing game, you know, like hiding when she came in and saying, you know, I'm sorry, Mom, or something, you know, like I couldn't make it or whatever. But it was not, no, he said, I haven't seen her since Friday. So all those four days, I didn't know at all. Lavoie at the time was 27 years old, around 5 foot 11, 180 pounds, had green eyes, glasses, and a brown mullet cut. We'll learn a lot more about Michael as we proceed, because he figures prominently in the stories around Cheryl's case. And another important detail. What's your name here? Yeah, put the drink down. Thank you very much. Very there warm moment. Go. What's your name? Mike. Your name is Mike Lavoie. Cheryl disappeared. Shortly after Michael Lavoie proposed to her. Apparently, Mike has a very, very important question to ask this young lady. At a December 31st, 1997 New Year's Eve bash, being held at the Hamilton Convention Center and televised live on the province wide station known as On TV. I'd like 
like to ask you to mirror me, Cheryl. Marriage proposal! And now it's turned into a soft porn film. Hey, All right, this is what the answer? Yes. The answer was yes. We have Let's a love connection. Another love connection. That's about the third one tonight, and I'll tell you, that's, a, that's an advertisement for Jack Daniels right there. As we continue on, Y95 on TV, New Year's Eve Bash, live from the Hamilton Convention Center. Through the looking glass of this orangey, grainy video remnant of that boozy Hamilton winter's night 18 years ago, we see a crowded room of partiers. At center frame, Michael Lavoie stands, wearing what looks like a white crewneck cotton sweatshirt with a golfer on the front. Lavoie is smiling and he already has a ring in his hand when he draws Cheryl Shepard into the camera's view. Cheryl is smiley, dressed in a black and silver metallic striped outfit that forms to me what looks like a giant butterfly in her chest that subtly flourishes its wings as she moves. She's wearing a gold-flecked maple leaf tiara and in her right hand holding a plastic cup with beer and a cheap noisemaker. Both Lavoie and Shepard are wearing what look like identical crucifixes on thin chains around their necks. Cheryl doesn't answer Michael's question when he asks it, focusing instead on the ring he places on her left hand ring finger. The male host, anxious for that TV moment to happen, prompts Cheryl for her answer, and she says yes into the mic. The answer, yes. the answer was yes. The host's comments about soft porn come when Mike leans in to kiss Cheryl, with his mouth and eyes open. Both Lavoie and Shepard seem to say things in the video that are off microphone. Cheryl also hands Michael something that looks like a phone. Following Cheryl's disappearance, these few televised moments, some of the last where Cheryl was ever confirmed seen, have been studied many times for any clue. What's your understanding of what happened with this marriage proposal? Mike, he told me that when I arrived that night, he said, we're engaged. I said, what? He said, yeah, I proposed to her on TV. He was there at the um, convention center. That's where it took place. I have a tape of that. The police make, got a tape and they made me a tape. She already told me, Mom, there's no way we're going to get married unless he gets a full-time job. That was it. She calls you and does not tell you. No, she did not tell me. Why didn't she tell you that Michael proposed to her, do you think? I think that she must have had an argument with him saying, there's no way we're going to get married unless you get a full-time job, because she always told me, Mom, there's no way we're going to get married. He wants to get married, but there's no way. Don't you think that she would have said to you, Mom, God, he proposed to me, but I'm not going to marry him? No, she would not say that to me on the phone. She wouldn't have said that. I mean, do you still have any thought that she might be alive somewhere? No. Yeah. You know what? Shell was so close. There's no way. No way. I know that. Like, I, I couldn't understand if Shell had a car accident or maybe she was sick or something. At least I know where to go and do a little prayer and, you know, and visit her, you know, in the cemetery. I'm going to be seven in a couple of months. I don't need to.
Some aspects of the stories we hear can be verified, while others cannot. Odette's recollections and experiences and beliefs about her daughter's disappearance are no exception. Her memory, she says, isn't what it used to be. It's been almost 18 years. Odette was physically there in the Hamilton apartment on January 4th, 1998, when Michael arrived and told her about the New Year's engagement. But she wasn't there when she theorizes that an argument must have happened between Michael and Cheryl sometime after the engagement. It's up to me to examine all the theories I can, including this one. Maybe it happened this way, maybe it didn't. Right now, we don't know what happened to Cheryl. And on balance, through the course of the investigation, I'll try to separate the known from the speculative and to use first-hand accounts of any information given over anything else. And while this story was covered in the media extensively, you'll be hearing many details that have never been reported before. Drawing another tissue from the box next to her, Odette continues mining her memories of that time while dabbing her eyes. Saturday I left in the morning. I, I arrived uh, Sunday in Toronto. And when I got home, finally, because I had no one to pick me up, so I had to get home, find a way home. Eh? He came in, you know, like around 10 o'clock. I said, where's Cheryl? He said, I haven't seen her since Friday. I said, what do you mean? He said, I dropped her off in Niagara Falls. I said, what do you mean Niagara Falls? And you don't know. Here, Cheryl's boyfriend, Michael Lavoie, tells Odette a story that I'll be looking at in detail throughout this investigation. And then he sat at the table, so I questioned him. He said, I dropped her off at the Concord. Like, I said, for what? He said, well, she wanted to dance for the weekend. I said, why would she do that when she's got a full-time job? I said, and I thought she was finished with the dancing. She'd done it for a year, and she said she wouldn't do it no more because she, I was after her for that day because I was not... Mm-hmm. I didn't approve of it. It's not my thing. Michael Lavoya said in statements to police that he had nothing to do with the disappearance of Cheryl Shepard. He also says that on January 2nd, 1998, he dropped Cheryl Shepard off in the alley of the Concord Hotel, at the time a strip club in Niagara Falls, between 6.45 p.m. and 7 p.m. Cheryl had stripped before, but had not done so for at least a year, Odette says, and at the time of her disappearance had a full-time job as a baker at one of Hamilton's many Tim Hortons coffee and donut shops. Lavoie's story about dropping Cheryl at the Concord raises many questions, as does the police and media's treatment of that story and Cheryl's disappearance. I'll look at all of these questions. Boston recorded emergency 510. My wife's been shot, I've been shot. One of the most sensational stories in Boston's history, a white suburban couple shot in the heart of the city, followed by a massive manhunt for the black man who did it. Now the chase is on. You can't make this shit up. Oh, but they did make it up. This is a true story. Boston Globe and HBO Documentary Films present Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Chuck and Carol Stewart shoot. Listen to Murder in Boston on your favorite podcast app. Odette continues her questioning of Lavoie after discovering Cheryl hasn't been seen since late Friday, January 2nd, 1998. He was agitated. I questioned him, as in, 
I said, well, I'm going to phone the police because, you know, this is not Cheryl's nature. Cheryl and I were very, very close. Cheryl would not do what she did. So I phoned the police and I questioned, I told the police what happened. I said, I, I said I'm just talking to uh, my daughter's uh, boyfriend. I said, apparently he said he proposed to her on TV, which I didn't, I was not aware of that. I was not told. I said, I just got back from down east. And I said, um, he said he hasn't seen her since Friday. He said he dropped her off in Niagara Falls. And uh, he said, okay, maybe they had a, an argument. And she left. I said, no. I said, this is our home. I said, she, if something would have happened between them two, I said, she would have kicked him out because this is our home. Not his, he, his name was not on it at all. He said, okay. He said, well, wait overnight. You don't hear nothing in the morning. You have to phone us and we'll have to put a missing person. Well, you wouldn't believe my heart was just pounding. You wouldn't believe how I felt. Like I felt like drained down. Something just like I felt numb. I thought I need some sleep because I was on a train for 24 hours. Hey, that's a long time. And I went to bed. I left my bedroom door open a little bit. I thought if she can come during the night, maybe I'll hear her. So I went to bed and I lay there and listened. And I heard him, Mike, and I could hear him fooling around with some papers. So I don't know what type of paper he was looking for. And then he left. And then I guess he was watching TV for a while. And uh, I must have just dozed off. Like I fell asleep, that was it. I didn't hear him go out. And I didn't hear him come back. When I got up to get ready for work, I thought, what am I going to do? Like, it's 5.30, and I have to be at work. So I went to work, and I said, I need a replacement. I, they knew that something was wrong, eh? I'd been crying, and my face was just, I was drained out. And I told them what happened. They said, okay, you know, we could get you a, a, a spare driver, but it'll take about half an hour, you know, before. Mm -hmm. So I had to go get in the car. I went home and uh, turned around uh he was getting up to uh, to go out, I guess. Michael. Michael. I said, Michael, I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to have a coffee. My mother was just talking to her. Michael Lavoie's mother's name is Pat, another person on my list to speak to later in this series. And I phoned the police, and I said, look, I said, uh, she hasn't been home yet. You know, I told them on the phone, the police, what I told the officer the night before on the phone. And they said, well, you have to come to Stony Creek in the police station because it was closed there and put a missing person. According to Odette, she then goes to the Stony Creek Police Detachment, but they don't have the right forms to fill in for a missing person. So they put her on the phone to Central Division. So they didn't have the form and everything else, so they switched me on the phone. I spoke to the, the crime unit on the phone from Stony Creek to Central, and I told them what happened the night before the phone call I made. And they said, well, you know what? He said, you go home, we'll be there. We have to gather some papers together before we come down. But he said, don't touch anything else in the house. But something was different when Odette returned to the apartment from the police station. Many of Michael Lavoie's belongings were gone. By the time that I went to the police station to put a report, 
He must have been watching me because when I went to the police station, he went in the house and removed all his clothes from Cheryl's closet, all his hockey equipment and everything else, and he had two hockey equipment, duffel bag. One was missing. Whether the hockey bag was or wasn't there is something we can't verify. But it is something that I will be asking police about later. So tell me about the hockey bag, because if you noticed that one of them was missing, you must have been before he took everything. So tell me about the hockey bag that you said you thought you thought was missing. He had two of them. He only had one there. And wh- so when did you notice the hockey bag was missing? When I, uh, I came back from down east, I came in the house, and I looked around, and... The phone was flashing, so I knew there was message there. So I knew she wasn't did not come home. But I went in the spare room to uh, drop off my uh, my luggage, and there was only one hockey hockey bag there. Okay, didn't think nothing. I thought that he was at a hockey game, you know, and maybe she was with him. I don't know. Until he came home, and I questioned him, and he, after a while he was agitated. Eh? I look away from Odette to give her a bit of a break and I see that the sun is setting outside, casting an orange light through the trailer windows that reframe Cheryl's picture in a mottled glow. Ron's watching me and smiling and nodding and Odette is waiting for me to continue. So Michael lived with you? Off and on for for the past two years. It was a rocky relationship. And so did you witness examples of rocky relationship between he and Cheryl? Did you did you witness any kind of aggressive behavior between him and your daughter? A few times. She would be crying. And, you know, and I said, Cheryl, I said, you could do better than that. You could find someone, you know. And I couldn't pressure her, you know, at her age. And uh, she said, I know mom, you know, and... He would turn around and say, I'm sorry, I'll get a job. How many times he said that, you know? Um, you know, he would cook for her. He would uh, run her bath, buy flowers, buy a bottle of wine, you know? And I thought, how phony, because I, I could see what he was doing just to win her back, and then he would start that again. He would get into, uh, she had a big can, and she was saving all her change. She had, her can was full. And I thought, and she said, Mom, that's going to be for my holiday money. And I thought, if you could do that, I'll double it for her. I told her that many times. I'll double it. But he would dig into it and play Proline a lot. And that's Michael. And that's Michael. Like one time she hid her wallet under my mattress. She said, Mom, you know, that because I don't want him to uh, to go into my you know, my wallet. So did you ever witness him hitting her? No. No, no. He wouldn't do that because I would have said something to him. And did you ever witness uh, Michael yelling at your daughter? No, no, no. While Odette never witnessed Lavoie physically hurting Cheryl, she does claim to have seen the aftermath of it. Odette recounts an occasion where she drops by the Tim Hortons where Cheryl worked, Michael Lavoie would reportedly wait for long hours in the shop while Cheryl was there. He would sit there for eight hours, you know, at work. Her boss, Sam, had to tell him to leave. 
In a television report from the time, Cheryl's boss, Gary Valeri, appears on camera, saying almost the same thing. Michael would spend a lot of time at the Tim Hortons when Cheryl was there, over her eight-hour shift. Cheryl's well like. She enjoyed talking to people. She was a bubbly girl. When she was at Tim Horton, like, she had to do muffins and cakes and everything else. But when she was finished, she would go behind the counter and help them, eh? And um, Mike would go, be there having a coffee. And uh, Cheryl was talking to somebody more than the length of time because they loved talking to her. He would go, <clears throat> he would clear his throat to say, you're talking too much, you know. He was very possessive. And... One time I was I went at 11 o'clock in the morning, you know, I had a coffee break. <coughs> so I went to where she works, and uh, I got a coffee. And uh, she was, when I was going in, she was coming out crying. I said, Cheryl, what's the matter? You know, don't you feel good? She said, no, Mom. She said, he comes in, he harassed me. I can't even concentrate on my job. And I said, oh, be careful. And I was so scared, and I couldn't take time off in the middle of my shift. You know, and I was worried, and I thought, what am I going to do? So when I was finished, I got in my car and went home, and uh, you could tell that she has been crying, and there was another baker that was at the house with Cheryl. I said, what happened? She said, the police just left. She said, Mike started an argument. He grabbed her throat, and it was scratched really bad here. It was bleeding. And I guess she tried to stop him, and, and he scratched her hand on the towel. And I said, Cheryl, be careful. She said, Mom, if he, the phone rings, don't answer it. Was that incident reported? Did she go to the hospital and have the choking reported? Do you know? No, the police took the report. To it. I would Something else to follow up on with police. Across the street where we lived, there was a bingo hall there. She would leave a note sometimes because if I finished early, I would go and have my uh, my dinner, I'd warm it up. She would save the table for me in case I, I do show up. And I would go and meet her there. And um, after a while, he would show up. He would sit so close to her. He would sit so close to her and have her arm around her to make sure everybody knows she's mine. She, she said, well, you know, I need room to play my bingo, eh? He had to move a bed because he was, you know, holding her so tight. It's interesting. I mean, I, I, you just you wonder whether someone who was so possessive, as you say Michael was, of Cheryl, would just drop her off in an alley and let her just That's go. Right. Back to that Sunday evening when Odette returned home. Had you looked in Cheryl's room at all up to this point? I did. Okay, and did you notice anything out of place in her room? Uh, no, no, but the police, uh, her glasses was there, her contact lens. Cheryl needed either one of them. She has to have that. And that was there. Her wallet, we find her wallet, the police and I, in her coat in the closet. I bought her a new coat for Christmas, eh? a dressy coat. It was in her pocket facing the wall inside, because we searched everywhere. They moved the dresser, they flipped the bed, the mattress, they checked the drawer, they checked everything. The car key was there and everything. Her credit card, her driving license, everything was there. So they took that with them. 
You said that when you got home from New Brunswick, that Michael walked in and put her car keys on the counter. Yeah, that's when I said, what, how come you got her car key? He said, well, when she got out of the car, when I dropped her off in Niagara Falls, she left it on the seat. So he had his own car. He had a van. And she had her own car. Yes. Yeah. And her car was in the parking lot at your house. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Okay. And so it was a van. And his van. Yeah. Okay. Because they took the car to Niagara Falls, he said. So they took her car. Uh, her car, but her own key. So how could he, she leave her? He had a spare key for her car. I see. But he left her car key. She had a mailbox key on it. Her um, uh, house key. Right, right. According to Odette, Michael put Cheryl's personal set of car keys on the counter when he walked in the door. Odette knew they were Cheryl's keys because her mailbox key and house key were also on the ring. Lavoie says Cheryl left her keys on the car seat when he dropped her off in the alley of the Concord Hotel. And did, did, do you notice? Do you know if the police found any evidence of a struggle or any hair or blood or other kinds of? You know what. I had to leave the house for 10 days when the police came. They turned around, they were hit there, and they were there all day Monday. They were there Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock. They phoned me not to touch anything. They came down and they bought a, a commander truck. They put our, parked it at the back. They, um, I had to pack a, a bag. I had to leave. And then... That's when they said, you know, like, you'll have to, you know, give us a place for 10 days. They had the commander truck there, and they did forensic tests, and the whole wall, my bedroom door, Cheryl's bedroom door. from here down it was when they, they, 10 days after they phoned me at work they said they're going to meet me at, at my place turn to me turn and give me the key and that's when they told me like they, they kept everything clean you know like I mean they were there for 10 days day and night but when they did forensic tests it was all circles the, the wall from the living room to my bedroom like the hallway, my bedroom, show. <laughs> and he said we didn't have time to clean it. He said, but it would wash off good. So did you see little circles of pen circles on the wall? All over, yes. And was it all over the whole whole? No, the just place? the hallway, my bedroom, Cheryl's bedroom door. And where would you say the more of the circles were? Did it concentrate? In the hallway. It was a long hallway from... Okay, from where the living room was, and there was my bedroom, but my bedroom door was there, right close to hers. Like you know, there was a, a wall there, but from from here down. But with the police, I guess with the stuff they have, they could detect that it was you know, and that's what upset me. And um, how high off the ground were the circles? About like, here. Okay, so Cheryl was five four. So the the circles were say four or five feet off the ground. Yes. And all the way to the ground? It was more so. There were more lower. Lower, yes. Okay. 
but none higher oh, than... Oh, God, no, no, okay. no. There are questions about how that blood got on the wall, or if it is even blood at all. But Odette is certain it could only mean one thing. I just couldn't cope it. You know, I just couldn't believe that she was gone. The police was afraid, this, you know, that uh, I could take my life because of this. I said, no. I said, I'm strong enough for that. I said, I want to find out where she is. She didn't deserve this. <laughs> I'm sorry I had to cry, but... Oh, this is the worst nightmare going. <laughs> she didn't deserve this. Oh, God. Magic hour has long since faded into night. Odette's tired and sad and convinced and determined that Michael Lavoie had something to do with her daughter's disappearance. We do not know this, though. Far from it. He may very well have had nothing to do with it. And there must be other suspects. What we do know is that Cheryl's case is still cold that she needed glasses or contact lenses to see, but they were found in her apartment. Cheryl's wallet and the entirety of its contents also in the apartment. The circles on the walls, the missing hockey bag, the answering machine, the Concord Hotel. These questions and more that I'll revisit with Odette and others, including next week, the police. And also the question, why, a few days after Cheryl Shepard disappeared, was Michael Lavoie, her newly public fiancé, found in a Hamilton storage locker, with the door closed, inside Cheryl Shepard's white Buick, unconscious, overcome by carbon monoxide fumes. You have been listening to Episode 1, The Trailer Park. Visit cbc.ca slash sks to see a video of the New Year's Eve proposal. Subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please tell your friends. Someone Knows Something is hosted, written, and produced by David Ridgen and mixed by Cecil Fernandez. The series is also produced by Chris Oak, Ashley Walters, Steph Kampf, and executive producer Arif Nurani. Our theme music is by Bob Wiseman, with vocals by Mary Margaret O'Hara and Jess Reimer.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.